When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do on this podcast is we take a piece of pop culture and we reveal that no matter how weird or wonderful or sci-fi it might be, there's always real history lurking just underneath the surface. Now, I have been doing this type of Condensed Histories for about a year and a half now, give or take. However, in the past, the man behind all of this, the editor, used to be my co-presenter, Greg Chapman. But every now and then, usually around about Christmas for some reasons, but anytime I mention magic, he feels the need to jump onto the podcast with me. So, Greg, welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Oh, pleasure to be back on the podcast. Great. You see, the other problem with dealing with somebody who's now also the editor is he gets all the cool sound effects. And I don't know, he might throw in something here of like, I don't know, me being flushed down a toilet or something. I don't know. But uh, oh, OK, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And this is also weird because normally I just talk and then days later he'll put in the sound effects. But we're doing a cool new thing. What, what is it, Greg? T- t- share everybody what's happening on this particular one, because I can hear the sound effects as you put them in. Well, yeah, normally we we. I'd go in afterwards and I'd do all the sound effects. Now, there are actually going to be two types of sound effects this time because I've had a computer meltdown just before we've started this and I've gone through and carefully selected. As you know, usually during these things, I put in little drops, I had little sounds, it's all a bit of fun. And I'd gone through and I'd carefully selected all the drops, all the sounds for this particular episode that I thought we might need and uh, I've had to go to my backup computer, so I've got none of those. So I'm going to be working with the basic selection I've got and then I'll be... Trying to figure out how I add some extra ones as well. I might just, I'll be honest with you, I'll probably just do the Harry Potter Edit quotes myself and pretend yeah. that they're, they're the originals. It's fine. So, Jim, what are we talking about? Because I think I've just given it away. Uh, well, uh, I, I, you know, I don't recall that. But uh, yes, we're talking this time round about Harry Potter. Let's face it, it's on the front of the podcast anyway. You will know what the topic is regardless. But yeah, we're doing Harry Potter, okay? You're a wizard, Harry. Okay, there we go. I mean, that was definitely going to be in there somewhere, uh, but that was Greg's pretty good uh, Hagrid. I'm, I'm going to just say that. So what this means is we're going to have to talk a bit about what a witch is and isn't. Uh, we're going to be talking about literary history as well and a bit about the history of magic, which is definitely something that is very close to Greg's heart, seeing he's a magician, a performer. So all this stuff is going to be here. Let's, as always, Let's actually start off with the the actual pop culture itself. And again, I know Greg's got some opinions on this. So just to set the the scene, J.K. Rowling first started writing these books in the 1990s. The very first Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in Britain, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in America. I, I don't know why. Do Americans not like philosophy? Not quite sure. But that was released in 1997. And it got solid reviews and it had okay sales enough sales to have a second book and indeed if you ever find a first edition paperback of the first harry potter book in good condition it's pretty rare because i think the initial print run was only about five thousand. a lot of them were sent to libraries and obviously they got mangled by the kids so it was a modest hit But people really liked it. And so you get to the second one, Chamber of Secrets, and and it builds up some momentum. And what I noticed, so 
the first four books come out one year after another. You get 97, uh, 98, 99, and 2000. And then after that, she, she it's three years till the next book and then a couple of years uh, for the last two books. But the point is, year after year, it started building momentum. I remember by the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban, it was having a, a bit of a, a snippet in the uh, in the BBC at the end. Obviously, it wasn't the top news story, but it was in there somewhere going, oh, there's this new book and this really popular series children are beginning to fall in love with. And I was, if you like, of the age where I... I was already grown up, but I started reading the books as an adult uh, round about uh, the, the fourth one, The Goblet of Fire, which is when it went huge. It was just colossal. By that point, it had reached a point where books generally don't go. And already they were saying that it was going to be turned into a movie that didn't come out. The first Harry Potter movie didn't come out till 2001. And it was the biggest grossing movie of that year. Number two being the first Lord of the Rings movie. Uh, so this is 20 years old of the movies. It's even further back if you want to talk about Harry you know, as a, a literary source. And uh, Joanne Rowling, apparently JK was put in there because even in the 1990s, it was assumed that women writers wouldn't do as well as male writers. And this is something else that sort of changed in the last 20 years in that when I was growing up, you would have books by people like the brilliantly named Eric Van Lustbader, that's his real name. And he would write books like called like Ninja. And there were some saucy scenes in them. And there were some always some action scenes in them. And they were very popular amongst teenage boys and young men um, in the in the 80s and 90s. Or you'd have somebody like Alistair MacLean in the 60s to the 80s doing things like the Guns of Navarone. And so there was this huge genre of action books which fast forwarding to the, the 2020s just doesn't exist anymore. You might occasionally get an Andy McNabb, but that's not really the same thing as these sort of big event thriller books that people like Alistair McLean used to write. And indeed, today, I'm pleased to say that, that it's actually women who have the bar. You are more likely to get a best-selling book from a woman than from a man nowadays. So it's actually something that's flipped around. I mean, it's only taken four and a half thousand years since the invention of writing for them to get to that point. But it is interesting now that Joanne Rowling would have been, if she started writing now, actually would have been encouraged to use her first name rather than her initials so that she was never shy about her name, but it was what her publisher told her to do. So that, if you like, sets a little behind the scenes of it. And as I, as I said at the beginning, a bit about literary history, I'll come into how much Rowling was actually pulling from other literary traditions. I think I'm going to say this. I think her genius is pulling together a whole bunch of standard things but giving them a new coat of paint, making them fresh and exciting, even though each individual part was something that's been done a uh, hundred times before. And the other thing I'm going to say is I'm a huge fan of the books. The books are amazing. They're all five star, five out of five, amazing books. The thing about the last book, you know, she, so she always said, I know how this is going to end. And in the final book, I'm not going to give anything away in case you haven't read them. In the final book, she is literally referring to stuff that she put into the first book. And clearly she did have that through line, as opposed to things like Game of Thrones, where that, you know, he still hasn't finished writing the book, so they didn't quite know how to finish the series, and it led to a lot of controversy over how they finished the TV series. You know, she gave you a strong beginning, middle, and end in this highly imaginative world, but I'm going to say the films are good. They're not classic. I don't think they're amazing. I think if you're going to look at the first Harry Potter versus the first Lord of the Rings movie, it is pretty obvious which one's the better made film, something that's more cinematic, if you like. So I think the films are using exceptional source material and being almost um, workmanlike with the subject material. There's nothing wrong with them. The problem is that the children, as they grow up, they become better actors. But quite frankly, Harry in the first movie looks right you know, he's 11 years old. He doesn't have perhaps the emotional clout of a an adult female author putting words into the mouth of an 11-year-old. So yeah, that's where I am in terms of books versus movies. I feel I've been talking a fair bit. 
over to you in terms of Harry Potter um, right before we get into the magic and all that kind of stuff, Greg. I thought one of the great things you just said there was the first book, and it, they are the books. I think certainly to start off with, they were very much a a general reading. When you get to the films, they're very much a general reading of the books. It is a, a very if you're going to take this book and convert it into a film, you follow all these beats, and that's how we do it. And I think one of the things that gave them difficulties, especially with those first books, is when you're writing a book and you're writing a a young character, you're writing an 11-year-old character, you can have them do what you want and they can act it and anything you need them to do, that 11-year-old character can do. When you've got a film and you suddenly need the 11-year-old actor to be able to do it all and all of a sudden you've got people like Maggie Smith, you've got Alan Rickman, you've got... Richard Harris in the first film. You've got Robbie Coltrane. You've got all these incredible actors. And you're giving the whole weight, the whole focus of the film to an 11-year-old who's who's not got all this weight of experience. And you can't just go into that film and, and backtrack it and go, oh, can we just kind of give Dumbledore a bit more to do because Richard Harris is amazing? Couldn't we just change? You can't do that. You've got to stick to the book. And so actually to find the the children that they did, to actually find the level of acting that they did from children that age, and the fact that even past, the, as it's gone on, I mean, Daniel Radcliffe has gone on to do some incredible stuff and he really has grown as an actor. But I just think that the hardest part about that sort of adaptation of a, a children's book into an adult film or into a into a film is the children's characters and the fact that you have to stick with them. And it's why when you watch a TV series, usually an American TV series, something like, Smallville, where it's all set with the, the growing up of Superman. I don't know why I chose that one, because I can't remember any of the actors' names. <laughs> but what you end up with is you end up with actors, usually, that are well older than they're supposed to be in the film. It's why we kind of sit down and watch something like Smallville or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and everyone just seems a little bit older than they should be. You can do that once you get into high school, late teenagers. You can kind of cast slightly up in the age, but... You can't really get away with bringing in a a 30-year-old actor to play a 15-year-old or an 11-year-old boy in Harry Potter. And so I just think that it's really a big big step when you take a book about a child and you leave them as a central role to actually get that right. I think that was an incredible thing they managed with the Harry Potter films. Yeah, I look, I absolutely agree. I think it's a valid point that you, you know, yes, you've got these amazing actors, but the weight is being carried by the complete newbies, literally by children. And the other thing that's pretty obvious, particularly in the early movies, is Emma Watson playing Hermione. I mean, look, Hermione, as my sister said, Harry would be dead without Hermione by the end of the first book. Okay. She really does carry him a lot that does not mean that she is necessarily better than him though but but unfortunately for the movies emma watson is a far more naturally gifted actor than uh the daniel radcliffe so so that's the other problem in the first three films harry's one of the weakest links in the films now he does get good and you know there's no doubt that by the time you get to the end he's everything that the book version is would you agree Oh, I absolutely would, yes. He's And, I mean, I had a couple of friends who worked on the Harry Potter films. I won't mention what context they worked in because I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that they told me. But what they did tell me, and I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not even going to tell you which one of the three children it was because I, I don't want to sort of enhance any prejudices, but they said to me that there were the three main child actors. There was Watson, Grin, and Radcliffe. And they said the funny thing was, because they worked on, I think, four of the films, starting with the first one moving forward, and they said the whole time one of those three actors would, when they came onto the set each day, if they saw you, if they saw you, if they walked past you, you, you know, you're the grip, you're the best boy, I think one of them was. So, you know, you're, you're just working with the cameras. If they saw you, they would say good morning, they'd say hello, they'd have a little chat with you. Absolutely fine. And they said the second one of them blanked everybody just you know they were there for the acting they were there for their their main cast they were doing their acting they talked to the director and the third of them would go around and specifically go around the room each day and talk to each person but more than just talking to each person they wanted to know what everybody's job was and they really really wanted to understand how the movie was being made and they wanted to understand all these different elements beyond the acting and to me that is a sign of of the great actors, if you ever get a chance, if you've ever read uh, Michael Caine's 
autobiography or his, his books about acting, one of the big things that he always talks about is make sure you know what is the sound man's job, what is the lighting man's job, what is a cameraman's job, and how can you as an actor make it easier for them to get your best shot? And I think that that's just fascinating that the three kids on there actually had these three vastly different approaches to how they actually communicated with the crew and everybody on the set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, this is the thing. We could do an entire podcast on the history of the making of these films. After all, well, between the books and the films, we're talking about 15, close to 20 years. And of course, they're still going on with the Fantastic Beast movies, which I'm going to say are terrible. I, you know, they're a nice idea. First of all, you can't, if, when everyone complained about Peter Jackson turning The Hobbit into three movies, well, this is a very thin book called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And, it, you know, it, it was, I think, created for like comic relief one year. It's not even 100 pages and they're trying to turn it into five movies. So, of course, it has to be filled out with all other kind of stuff. And there's hardly any fan, Fantastic Beasts to find in the second movie because it's all about the rise of Grindelwald and all this kind of stuff and and you could tell that she wrote the second of those movies because it it looked like a book and and you realize there is a big difference between a screenplay and a novel and it didn't work at all and it didn't do very well at the box office now i wish them well it's you know it's great to see a british franchise of british people rather than just american superheroes although some of those superheroes are played by brits so you know it's nice to have something different other than just superheroes out there and and the Wizarding World is an interesting one, but I think they need to recognise that she's the creator rather than she should be running everything. But anyway, I, I digress. You know, I'm, I'm aware of time. We This could be a four hour long podcast. It could be like the, the Beatles Get Back, the other Peter Jackson project out there at the moment. Um, we don't have time to talk about that one. So, yeah, what I wanted to do is talk a little bit about uh, the literary side of things and then start moving into the magic where Greg is going to jump in there. But what I find interesting on, on the literary side of things is Rowling knows her stuff. And it didn't surprise me at all when the first thing she did after Harry Potter was to do a murder mystery, because structurally the, the books, almost all the books and indeed the entire series is structured like a murder mystery, where what you do is you have an event and then you have a cast of suspects and something that was mentioned in passing. This is, if you like, the genius of, of crime books as opposed to movies, because you can literally put in one sentence in a book of description and you just get the feeling of, oh, so they're describing a room. And then you realize much, much later on, it's like, oh no, one of those lines was the murder weapon or whatever. Whereas in a movie, you'd have to then sort of linger on maybe a dagger at the back of the bookshelf or something. And, and it's far more obvious in a visual way rather than a literary way. So that's, you know, so she absolutely does, does that. It's perhaps the most pronounced in the second book, Chamber of Secrets. In essence, okay, the kids are being paralyzed, but really what's happening is a murderer is going around committing murders. Who's committed the murders? And, you know, the solution is magical rather than Hercule Poirot going, it was you at the uh, at the cafe last night or something like that. Uh, so, you know, in terms of structure, she's done her homework. She knows how to, to build a really compelling murder mystery. But the other thing she does is she picks up on the classic boarding school books, which are set up around the term times. And that's exactly how she sets up most of the books, not the last one because they're not in school anymore. But really, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the, the three chapters, the three stages in a in a uh, in an actual story, in a story arc. And so you've got you've got the uh, autumn, you've got the autumn or winter term, you've got the spring term and you've got the summer term. And then conveniently, all these evil people uh, manage to reveal themselves during the summer term and are managed to be defeated just before they go off on summer holidays. Uh, and it's great. Funny. What, what I like is that the the bad guys, all the evil malevolent forces in Harry Potter world take the summer off. It's a bit, it's a bit yes, warm, yes. bit warm for the evil magic. Let's just have the summer off. Nothing's going to happen over the summer. Harry, you go home where you're safe for reasons that we can't really explain, but we try to in one of the books, uh, yes. love or whatever. You go home, Harry. You chill out, and uh, we're all going to go off to Barbados, and we'll be back in six months. <laughs> Well, it's nice to know they've all got a holiday home somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, so so um, so that's the second thing. But a third thing that she does that's kind of a literary trope, particularly of Britain, is 
this I found this interesting. This got quite controversial in the late 1990s and early 2000s. But when I was a kid reading these comic books like uh, Beano and Dandy, did you really ever read anything like that? Oh, yeah, of course I read the Beano and the Dandy. Yeah, yeah, okay, so fine. So if you like, the, the, these were comics where actually most of the stories were either one page or maybe like just three pages. And the point was, victory was had, success was had, not by conquering the world. These are just children going on jolly japes kind of thing. Instead, what was happening at the end as a reward is they'd all sit down to a big slap up meal. <laughs> yeah. and, and you'd have desperate Dan who would just eat lots of beef pie. So there was all this stuff around food. And that's because these things like the, these things like the Beano were created round about World War II when there was rationing. So, you know, kids getting loads of sweets was an impossible dream that, you know, they might as well be dreaming to travel into space at, at that stage because actually uh, the rationing of, of, of sweets and sugar lasted into the uh, early 1950s. That's how long it lasted in, in the UK. And, and food rationing, obviously, did continue for a little time after the war. So the point is there was a whole generation that grew up with the idea of like having a big slap up meal was was the best thing ever. And certainly in Harry Potter, again, sort of like tying it into the whole. It's interesting exactly when she decides to start the story kind of depends. But as you said, it always lulls over the summer holidays. But, you know, there are a number where there are these euphoric scenes of huge feasts in the Great Hall, sometimes around about Christmas time, sometimes not. But again, the food is the equivalent of being given a big gold medal kind of thing. And so you've got all these things which you can, you know, she did not create. These all existed before, but she's got the skills to pull them all together. And I'm sorry, to this day, I've got two teenage boys. They love food. We, everybody loves food. And but having these huge slap up meals is, is great. The other thing. I just wanted to say in terms of literature and briefly going back to Tolkien is an awful lot of the stuff that she throws in there already existed. There is an absolute dotted line between Dumbledore, by the way, medieval word for Bumblebee. That's where she got the name for Dumbledore. So Dumbledore is clearly her version of Gandalf, you know, the, the wise wizard who isn't there all the time to help him out. So, or, you know, or Merlin, that's the other one you could compare him to. Maybe you could say Gandalf is a riff on Merlin, slightly different, but anyway, but those three people exist in the same space and Dumbledore was created last. So that's not an original idea to her. Then there's the idea of the Dementors. That's very much like the Black Riders, uh, the Nazgul in, in Lord of the Rings. And when I first read about Horcruxes in Lord of the Rings, sorry, in, interesting, I would make that mistake, but in Harry Potter, I loved them. But the more I thought about them, it's like, hang on, that's Lord of the Rings again. Now, if you don't know, a Horcrux is basically you are able to put an element of your soul into an item. And you may kill me, but as long as the Horcrux remains in one piece, I'm not fully dead. You know, I might be a wraith, a specter, and I can slowly reform myself, reforge myself. Uh, and the genius is that, uh, or evil genius, if you, of he who must not be named, he ends up putting himself in several and uh, multiple Horcruxes, so making him almost immortal. That's basically the one ring. You know, Sauron has been destroyed multiple times, but never fully because the ring itself has not been destroyed. That's where she got the idea. So, yeah, she is pulling, you know, she's got a massive giant spider. Uh, uh, Aragog, I think's the name. That's uh, Shelob from uh, Lord of the Rings, too. All these things she's pulled from other fantasy genres, and that's okay. I'm not turning around and saying that diminishes her, but she's, she's getting all this stuff. She's getting these standard components, but rebuilding them into her own unique way. And there is no doubt that Harry Potter, while it, of course it wears its influences on its chest, is very much its own thing. This is why they've been able to copyright it and make a fortune out of it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's true. And the thing is, you can sort of look at all these different influences. But like you say is clearly influenced by Lord of the Rings. That influence is very clearly there. And I remember when it first came out, you had all the um, the Lord of the Rings snobs. Because when this came out, I was still in high school for certainly the first couple of books, at least, first few books. And when it first came out, you had all these these Lord of the Rings, Tolkien snobs. Oh, no, look, she's just copying. And the thing is, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, she's taking elements of Tolkien. But for me, it was one of the things you said there, and it just triggered. I was like, oh, yeah, hold on. Harry Potter is just Jennings goes to school with magic. At the same time, but, but yeah, and but hang on, the, the genius there is to say, well, hang on, maybe we could take the idea of Lord of the Rings and the idea of Jennings and the idea of sort of there's a famous five, there's Enid Blyton element there with the kids. We could take all these elements and combine them into one story, and that's really the the genius, the skill of everything that she does, and really good creators do because very few people come up with a completely original idea. When we first sent man to the moon, you know, when Neil Armstrong got on a rocket that went to the moon, it wasn't like somebody woke up one morning in early 1969 and went, do you know what? I've come up with this amazing idea. Let's just build this thing with a great big fuel tank underneath and it'll push Neil Armstrong to the moon. Well, no, it started off with, if you want to go right back into ancient history, early ballistics, and then eventually we end up going through the Second World War. We get rockets, bombs improving. We end up with the V2 rockets. And all of this is a trail of people going, oh, we could add this element. We could add this element. We need this from there. We need that from there. And eventually we end up with a rocket that can take you to the moon. And the genius is taking those things and putting them together. So it's incredibly easy to look at something, any modern piece of fiction, any modern piece of work and go, oh, yeah, well, I can see where they got that from and where they got that from. And it's that really annoying thing with all, I think, inventors, inventions, writers, everything else, is someone comes along and goes, oh, look, all they've done is they've just taken that, taken that, taken that. I could have done that. And it's that classic of, yeah, but you didn't. And that's the important thing. She did. And she's not also not the first person that's tried to combine elements like that, but hers just did it in a way that captured the imagination. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And And on that point... Of course, once that became a big hit, and generally fantasy by then was not considered a, a, a sure-fired literary hit, and certainly nothing like the success of the Harry Potter books had ever been shown before. In Kids' books have been turned into movies before, but it didn't turn into multi-billion dollar franchises, you know, revered around the world. There was just, there was just no way. I once remember seeing her, seeing her in an interview saying, did you ever think you'd get this successful? And she went, no, of course not, because nobody has ever become this successful as, as an author. I mean, probably even including someone like Stephen King. Uh, so, so yeah, so absolutely uh, agreed on those points. I'm aware that we're sort of being, being sort of talking around it. Let's get to some magic and to some, some, some witches. First thing, I'm just going to say one quick thing about witches. Then we're going to talk about magic and what magic is and isn't, and if you like the background of, of magic. But the thing about witches is, for, obviously, we talk about witches in the reference of witch trials. Yes, there were some laws in the Middle Ages against witches. And I've heard some people saying, oh, you're forgetting about all the people who died in, you know, earlier than the 1500s. That's because although these laws came out, they weren't persecuted. 
Why? Because they didn't like witches? Well, they didn't like witches, but they were, to be blunt, they were bigger fish to fry. They were called heretics, Muslims and Jews. And until the Crusades finished, until the conquest of, of Spain was, and the expulsion of the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, until that finished, which all sort of like ended round about 1500, then they needed to take their take the cast their ire on something else and that turned out to be women and it is worth remembering that when people talk about how oh, you know multiple witches were burnt here well first of all hardly any witches in any of the world were ever burnt they were usually either drowned or hanged sorry about that and secondly these women weren't usually witches they were pro probably good christian women who happened to have annoyed people in their local community these weren't wiccans living a different life you know being i don't know uh, alternative or vegan or you know uh, you know green warriors or anything like that no 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 they were just normal everyday women who were basically persecuted and i'm using the term women there but the other thing that's worth remembering is around about 15 to 20 percent of the witch trial accusees were actually male so it wasn't a uniquely female thing absolutely the majority were female but you know these are the things where when you say witches is the stuff that sticks in people's head and is all historically wrong. I had one person, one person went onto Facebook and sort of made these comments about witches. And I, I put that down as a reply. And clearly she was trying to compare what happened to these women to the plight of women today. And absolutely, I'm, I'm with her on that. You know, women don't have it easy. There's still many rights to fight for. And even if you do have equal rights in your country, there are still lots of countries out there in the world where women don't have equal rights. I get all that and I'm absolutely on board with that, but don't start comparing bits of history with stuff. You know, there isn't actually a comparison there when you look at it and you're actually reproducing a myth. And her response was, I'm sorry, but it was like that in Sweden. Okay, fine. Well, if that's the exception where Sweden, where it was only women and they were actually burned, then you're being so specific. Why do you think that that's applicable to the rest of the world? Because, because even during the time of the witch scares, Sweden clearly wasn't the normal kind of place if you want to come. And, you know, it's a bigger population in Germany, Britain, America than there was in Sweden. So that really annoyed me. She wanted to defend herself by being super specific, but wanted to apply that super specific thing generally to the 21st century. Back over to you, Greg. I tell you what, I have now come up with my new phrase because, you know, sometimes you see people having those arguments on on Twitter or on Facebook. And it's just so clear that both sides are just talking from a position of not really knowing their stuff. And both sides are coming at each other and just just attacking each other. And you get to the point sometimes where you read or someone's got a serious point and the other person is just trying to troll them or whatever. And occasionally I just feel like I just want something I can just write here just to just to go, look, you're just being stupid. And I think from now on, any time I see something like that come up, I'm just going to type in that comments box, well, it's not like that in Sweden. <laughs> it's a perfect There we go. That's code line. words. If you ever get that from Greg, it means you're being an idiot. So there we go. So, but of course, the other thing that it is drenched in, um, and just very briefly, I'm, I'm a big enough fan of Harry Potter. I've seen Harry Potter and the Cursed Child just before the whole COVID thing as well. I'm not going to say it's the best piece of theatre I've ever seen, but it's certainly the best theatrical experience I've ever seen. It's absolutely worth going, see, going to see. But it's another example like Fantastic Beasts where it feels almost like fan fiction. It, it just it lacks that magic of the and, and I guess it's so beholden to the original books that it isn't kind of its own thing. It isn't it hasn't really shaken itself off and been been fresh but oh my god what an experience in the uh in the theater and just quick thing i've got a behind the scenes thing about it they actually have dementors in this play and i was so gobsmacked at how they do the dementors i and everybody else i know assumed they were puppets they're not they're very tall very skinny men and this is absolutely true because a friend of a friend works on the show. That's not how I got tickets, by the way. I had to pay full price. But over COVID, everybody just sat at home eating biscuits. And so when they got back ready to go to, to, to be dementoring again, <laughs> in the words of the, the person in the, in the, in the theatrical production, our dementors were too fat. Like they couldn't be supported by the harnesses. So the Dementors had to go on a diet. And I am pleased to announce 
the Dementors are now back to their original weight and they will be dementoring tonight, probably at the West End. So, so yeah, so magic. Let's talk about magic because it wasn't invented by JK Rowling and it certainly wasn't invented by King Arthur. Where does it all come from, Greg? So history, the history of magic. Yeah, it's, um, it's a tricky one. Actually, one of the things about the whole Harry Potter thing that actually makes me really think of magic is the whole idea of the murder mystery element that you were talking about, Jem. It's the idea that J.K. Rowling sets these things up, like you say, you kind of go through and things hark back and things are drip-fed into you as you go along. You don't notice them as you go along. And then you get to the end of the book and suddenly you go, oh, hold on, that, that happened earlier on. That was really, really important. Which is kind of exactly the opposite of a magic trick. Because in a magic trick, we drip feed these things all the way through. But then when we get to the end, we want you absolutely to forget all those little elements that have built up to that final conclusion. As opposed to wanting you to remember all those little elements that led to that final confusion. But let's move on and look back at the, the history of magic. And obviously we've got to start with, with uh, what Mr Dursley says in the Harry Potter books. There's no such thing as magic. We're going to start from the basic point of view that the real magic now, obviously real magic is a, a vaguely defined thing, but we're going to talk about the idea of the history of, of magic in terms of what I do, in terms of magicians, in terms of tricks. And you can take this back quite a long way, but the further back you go, the more more vague and slightly distorted it all becomes. Because you can go right back to ancient Egypt, and there's a couple of real references that people draw and go, oh, this is the earliest record of a magician. This is the this is the first record of a magician going right back. And one of the earliest ones is Dedi. And Dedi was is written down in various books, and there's no historical record for him outside of one or two little comments, kind of he's taken as a almost fictional character, certainly legendary at the very best. But it's mentioned that he performs for pharaohs and that he uh, dismembers and restores to life animals. This is taking a head off and putting it back on. Now, you may have seen, please do not try this at home, whatever you do. It is a magic trick. But you may have seen modern magicians, and there are various modern magicians that do great versions of this, and including classic versions where they, they remove the heads from two different ducks and swap them over and all sorts of stuff like that. But there is reference to this happening now. Because we nowadays have that as an established magic trick inspired by the stories of Dedi in ancient Egypt about uh, two and a half thousand years BC. Uh, sorry, yeah, BC. Because of that, we have this situation where the magicians today are doing that trick and then somebody looks at it and says, ah, hold on a minute. Magicians today are doing this trick. Well, way back in the day, Deddy was supposed to have done that, so he was probably doing the same magic trick. And <laughs> Or he's a story, he's a legend, someone made it up. I mean, he may have been doing a magic trick for all we know, but there's no real evidence of that. And that brings us forward to one that I talk about a lot. If you've ever seen me do my cups and balls routine, and I actually have, I'm going to do a sneaky little plug here if that's okay, I actually have my first Magic Series DVD available to buy now, www.kofi.com forward slash greg forward slash shop if you want to get that. But part of that, I talk about the cups and balls, and I do various cups and balls routines in my professional career, out of shows and things like that. But your basic cups and balls, some people date it back to a tomb at Beni Hassan. So it takes back to about the uh, 21st century B.C., and there's this tomb at Beni Hassan. It's actually the tomb of a man called Bakit III. And on this tomb, there are obviously all sorts of wall arts and wall paintings. And there is actually, for the other part of my career, there is actually some wall art of a man juggling. Very, very clear that the person is juggling. So juggling, we can definitely date that far back. There is also a man with a cup and a ball. And because we have this incredibly historic magic trick of the cups and balls, and I mean, that is genuinely a really historical magic trick, it definitely goes back nearly 2,000 years. I'm going to come on to that very shortly. But whether you can say, because we've got a magic trick that goes back nearly 2,000 years with a cup and a ball, therefore any picture of a cup and a ball is automatically someone doing that magic trick and not doing one of a million different things, games, 
things like that that you could also do with the, the same cup and ball, it's kind of a little bit pushing it for me. However, having said that, it does make for a great story. And if you come and see my magic show or see my magic series, I will tell it because it is just possible. It is just possible that the tomb of Beni Hassan two and a half thousand years ago was actually the very, very basis of magic, the first recorded magic trick we've got. However, if we actually want to get something a little bit more tangible, we're actually sticking with the cups and balls for a minute because it's not until we get to the year six, uh, sorry, 50 AD. So we're moving way out of the Egyptian times. We're moving right into the heart of the Roman times now. And again, we get the cups of balls. And at this point in time, we have a, a really reliably documented magic trick. There were actually a group of magicians at the time called the Assetabalari. And I do apologize, my, my Italian's a little bit rusty, and that's obviously Latin. But the, the Assetabalari, they performed this cut and ball routine. And they, they performed, we've got records of this trick being performed for well over 200 years. And one of the records we've got of this is a historian, a Roman historian called Seneca, Seneca the Younger. And he actually took the time to write, Such quibbles are just as harmlessly deceptive as the juggler's cup and dice in which it is the very trickery that pleases me. But show me how the trick is done, and I have lost my interest therein. Now that sentence in itself is absolutely amazing, because there are a few elements there. First of all, we are looking back nearly 2,000 years, and we are seeing somebody performing the cups and balls. We're seeing someone perform very clearly. This is a, a magic trick. Now, the term juggler, magician, they get flipped and flopped around through history, and very often it depends on the translation as well. But the fact we have this cup and ball trick going back that far, first of all, that is pretty amazing. The other thing about it is, for me, the interest of the fact that one of the things you're told, one of the first rules you're told as a magician, and one of the rules that I'm so-so mm, with, one of the first rules is about secrets, and we must guard our secrets. And there's a great writer called Jim Steinmeier who said and Magical Thinker, actually, who said that magicians are hiding an empty box. And what he means by that is, yes, we have to keep our secrets, because half the time, if you found out how a trick was done, it's incredibly disappointing. And I'm going to be honest with you, especially true of my tricks, because you can come up with the most complicated method in the world, and you, you know you're going to fool people every time, and it's going to be amazing. I prefer, personally, really simple methods. Really, really simple methods that are just going to... Just going to let me know that, look, I fooled you with something really, really simple. It's just a sense of joy. But the idea that if you found out how it's done, it would be disappointing, it would be upsetting. Now, that's not always the case with magic. Sometimes the, the trick is as interesting as the performance, and that's when the magician has to work really hard not to give anything away because suddenly you're like, this is so clever, this is so amazing, I wish I could tell you how I did it, and, and we can't. However, obviously, at the same time, there's a levels of secrecy. For me personally, one of the reasons I'm not a member of the Magic Circle is because I, I, I don't like too much of that guarded secrecy. I'm not going to tell you how all my tricks are done, but if you've got a genuine interest in magic, if you've got a fascination, if you're interested, if you want to learn, especially youngsters, of course I'll teach you a trick or two. Absolutely no problem. Now, I'm not going to teach you my prime material, and I'm going to teach you tricks that are, again, hundreds of years old. I'm going to teach you some old tricks, so I'm not giving away anyone else's material. But at the same time, I do just enjoy the fact that passing on knowledge can also be a part of magic. Uh, but the, going back to this, even back then, Seneca was saying, I lose interest once I know how the trick's done. And then you kind of get the two different ways of looking at magic. Some people want to know how it's done, and some people don't want to know how it's done. And that brings me forward, because then we actually lose the thread of magic a little bit. It's really weird in the history of magic. Now, there are little bits where it pops up. But really, from the time Christianity arrives, they start to stamp down on magic and the occult and everything else, and they're really trying to control it. So certainly, uh, this is very much a Western view of the history of magic, I will be completely honest. This is, my knowledge comes from that side of things. But from that era, as the Christians sort of sweep across, certainly Western Europe, we lose magic. It kind of goes certainly underground. Now, obviously, people were still performing, but... We don't get the big performances and all. It was just frowned upon. And then we eventually end up with the first book of magic. The first magic book. And this is one that I find really, really fascinating. Because it brings us up to the 1500s. And I know Gem has already talked about 
witches and witchcraft and things like that. Well, in the 1500s, late 1500s, 1584 in fact, we have the discovery of witchcraft by Reginald Scott. Now, obviously, as Gemma's mentioned, witches are not going around doing magic. Obviously, in Harry Potter, you have the wizards and the witches and they're doing magic. But don't forget, in the real world, there's no such thing as magic. Certainly from the point of view we're taking on this particular podcast. So it's very important that we realise that when it comes to the discovery of witchcraft, it's not a book of spells. You know, you don't read the discovery of witchcraft and find, oh, look, this is, oh, this is how you curse someone. You know, you see spell books in shops these days. And it's, oh, I'll buy a book of curses. I'll go around and curse people, whatever it is. The discovery of witchcraft, and it was not, as some people misunderstand it to be if they don't know about it. The discovery of witchcraft is not a book written saying, aha, look, all these witches, we found them, we've discovered witchcraft, we know what they're doing. It was actually a book trying to persuade people that magic is not a, a supernatural evil thing. And in that book, it actually, it's, one, it's the first magic instruction book we got. It's the first book that it contains the revelation of the secrets. It actually has in that book the secrets of magic revealed. It is the, f the first published work we have on the performance side of magic. And it was written not to educate, not to say to people, ah, here you go, do you want to learn how to do the tricks? Not to give away the tricks either, because obviously sometimes there are some tricks that are used, for example, three-card Monty or Find the Lady, you may have heard it called, where you have the, the three cards, usually two regular number cards and a queen, and the person will throw them around on the table, and no matter how much money you bet, you're never going to find the queen. Well, actually, you will find the queen first time because it encourages you to bet more money. But the point of that is that one is a conless window, and some people have given away magic tricks like that simply because they don't want other people to be swindled or conned. Whereas this book was released to say, well, hold on, hold on, that's not what witchcraft is, that's not what magic is. Magic is this incredible, incredible performance art. So, in 1603, James I, James VI came to the throne. And if you want to know a bit more about James I, James VI, then you can go back to Jem's last podcast on where he talked about V for Vendetta and he discussed the gunpowder plot as part of that podcast. However, at that point in time, when James I came to the throne, he looked at his book that basically, I, to me, if anything supports the, the, the Christian ideology when it comes to witchcraft and things like that, and you really want to say, oh, well, everyone should be Christian, you know, the, the magic is bad or whatever else. If that, that sort of early Christian, that sort of 1500s Christian ideology, certainly James I, persecution of heretics, all that sort of thing, if you want to say, right, no, you don't want to go off and become a, a witch, the easiest way to do that would be to say to people, well, hold on, hold on a minute, you, you know the magic's not real, right? It's all just it's all just tricks. It's all just, you know, the guy's just tricking you. It's not he's not really using magic. When you see that person there and he swaps the duck's heads over, he, he's not really magic. He's not an evil magician. It's just a trick. It's fine. That's not entirely the line that James I chose to tread, or James VI chose to tread at that point in time. Uh, he had the book burned. He ordered for all copies to be burned, which makes it extremely difficult to get hold of, uh, a, a, an actual copy. Obviously, the first editions are just so, so rare. But yeah, so that is how seriously crushed magic was for a huge part of that time, right through... It was absolutely crushed, and it's not really until the 1800s that magic shows really come back. They spur on the entertainment, and I've talked a lot before, and I will no doubt come on this podcast again to discuss more about the, the Victorian era of magic and the great era of magic and all of that. That is one of my favourite eras to talk about. But coming into that time, for that whole period, that 400s, and the discovery of witchcraft book, the fact that that is where we get this, this basis of, of magic, and to what extent, like Deddy, if Deddy truly did perform a magic trick where he removed the head off an animal and put it back on using magic, please do not try this at home, then it's quite incredible to think that moving right forward till today, there's so much of history that now magic is generally accepted as, well, 
not magic, as it were, it's generally accepted as trickery and fun and entertainment, but there's so much of history, this very, very simple art, this very, very simple, really, game between the performer and the audience was treated as something malevolent and something that was pushed underground. I think I've I've just completely monopolised your podcast there, Jim. I'm going to throw back to you to finish up. You know, once you get Greg on a roll about magic, it's hard to stop him. But look, can we all agree that that was absolutely exceptional? Of course, he's saying all of this from the perspective of somebody who actually performs magic to this day. And it is interesting how magic was far more a part of religious ritual before Christianity. And if you like, eventually we get to the point where Christianity condemns anything that's considered magical as being evil, work of the devil, that kind of stuff. It, you can kind of see an evolution there of, of the attitude and relationship to the idea of magic. So, Greg, thank you so much. Who knows if you're going to suddenly stick in something insulting here. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. It's very tough to have a conversation with an editor. They can do whatever they want. I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. Would love to get your thoughts on this one way or the other. And please, if you don't, if you've come here for Harry Potter, we do lots of topics. It might be Scooby-Doo. It might be Warhammer. It might be Madonna. There's all kinds of things. We, we cover a myriad of different types of topics on this podcast. But thank you very much for listening and hopefully speak to you soon. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.